Hello and welcome to my special podcast series about inclusivity in digital placemaking and how to assess appetite and aptitude in this work. Digital placemaking seeks to deepen and develop relationships between people and place. I'm Grace Quantock, an inclusion fellow in digital placemaking with Bristol and Bath Creative Research and Design. In this series, I'm exploring how we can assess and develop appetite and aptitude for inclusive digital placemaking in those who hold power and resource. I'll be speaking to inclusion professionals, digital devotees, industry partners, policymakers, and influencers to explore and develop what's possible in an inclusive digital world. Welcome to episode two of Electric Inclusivity, Assessing Appetite and Aptitude. It's 2020, but women, people of colour, disabled people, and those who sit at the intersections of multiple marginalised identities are still wildly underrepresented in tech and digital industries. Today, we're looking at how we can assess appetite and aptitude in inclusive digital placemaking and how this makes a difference going forward. When I began my research in his inclusion fellow in digital placemaking, I started by looking for data. What works in inclusion? What does the data say? What research has gone before and shown us what actually makes the difference? And what I found was, this has not been studied enough. There are amazingly brilliant and well done and exciting and also terrible inclusion initiatives happening, but the amount of actual assessment and gathering of the data and assessing what works for change is incredibly thin on the ground. If I were cynical, I might think that it's because often organisations want to be seen to be doing something towards inclusion, but don't actually necessarily care whether the inclusion happens, especially if that would mean structural change happens. And actually, yes, I am very cynical. So, We have seen many scandals arising from the fact that people who use the technology are not included in the making of the technology. For example, the black women who couldn't open their iPhones as the iPhone facial recognition didn't recognise natural hair and their faces. The uh, game in which uh, there was such in-depth technology that allowed the soldiers' bootlaces to bounce in time as they ran. But... The designers did not check what language was spoken in Pakistan. They assumed it was Arabic. They filled out the signs and populated the beautifully designed virtual city with Arabic, a language not spoken there. And even down to the automatic hand soap dispensers that don't recognise black skin, we see in the analogue world and digital world lack of inclusion causing issue everywhere. And, of course, we have the famous stair-climbing wheelchairs. Please don't make any more stair-climbing wheelchairs. Let me break this down for you, just for a moment, because many people don't understand why it's an issue. So, as a wheelchair-using disabled woman, I don't want a stair-climbing wheelchair. Stair-climbing wheelchairs are not co-created. If they had been, 
people would know, the designers would know that stair climbing wheelchairs, every wheelchair, every person, is likely to get jostled. I do not want to be halfway up the stairs being jostled by people who think that my wheelchair is climbing the stairs too slowly. Uh, the stairs are often in poor condition. They, um, the wheelchairs may, are likely to break and get stuck. Listen, it takes two weeks of wheelchair service to come and fix my manual chair. How long do you think it's going to take them to come and fix a magic stair climbing wheelchair? Also, have you tried going up and down stairs in a, in a wheelchair or a stair climbing device or an evac device? Scary. Not fun. So... I also struggle with the idea that the stair climbing wheelchairs locate the issue in my body. They say, I can't climb the stairs, so I have to make it possible for me to climb the stairs, rather than asking, why are there stairs there? Stairs block lots of people. Stairs cause issue for people who have heavy shopping bags, who are carrying small children, people who are pregnant, people who are older. So many people struggle with stairs. What is it with society's obsession with stairs? Ramps? Now they can be good things. And this is just one one small issue. But we're thinking about uh, how we assess appetite and aptitude in inclusive digital base making. I came to this research embedded in my practice as a psychotherapeutic counsellor and writer. I may have very little faith in many of the structures and industries we've built around us, but I do hold faith in story. Story changes us. We can all think of a story that's impacted us and many we still carry. Quote, story engenders empathy. It is the best tool we have for understanding what it must feel like to be someone else. Systems change frequently involves collaboration across difference, bringing together actors with very different positions to re-envisage the goals of a system and to change it. The empathic quality of story is vital here, writes Ella Saltmarsh in the Stanford Social Innovation Review. I decided to draw on Petty and Capier's 1968's Elaboration Likelihood Model of Behavioural Change, which comes from work in counselling as a change process. As my background is in psychotherapeutic counselling, it's an aspect of interpersonal communication that I draw on in daily life and in change making. So, uh, the, this ELM, this Elaboration Likelihood Model of Behavioural Change, is theory of attitudinal change, which is seen on a continuum, with a central role of cognitive processing and on the one side and the peripheral route on the other side. So what works in this paradigm is asking questions designed to elicit stories. In the telling, hearing and co-reflecting on stories, something shifts. The human mind is a story processor, not a logic processor, as John Haddett, social psychologist and professor of ethical leadership at New York University's Stern School of Business explains. In my research, underpinning this continuum is the idea that people will reflect deeply or cognitively elaborate on a topic or influencing message. So, how do we get people to do this, this deep reflection? It's influenced by their ability to elaborate, their motivation to elaborate, if favourable or unfavourable thoughts are predominant in their thinking, and whether these thoughts are stored in the long-term memory. So if all these conditions are present, then attitude change occurs directly, centrally, 
And if not, if there's a low amount of reflective thinking or a capacity to be reflexive, the change can occur without much reflection, so it's very peripheral, and decision rules then. So this is our assumed things, like educated people are always right, or uh, longer work is, is, is more substantive and important. And uh, that's when, you know, associative cues dominate things. So what we're looking for is the reflective change. And so I looked into how we could think about this in terms of digital placemaking. And what I found is that uh, there has been various pieces of research, um, including a new study conducted by a pair of political science researchers, Sir David E. Brockman at Stanford and Joshua Carla at the University of California, Berkeley, um, who were looking into uh, what face-to-face or what conversation could draw out uh, experiences and produce a lasting shift in opinion. So what they found was they were uh, canvassing on uh, literature about political persuasion and how to change, uh, how doorstep canvassing can change minds about transgender rights. What really interested me about Brockman's and Carla's research was how it seemed to create a sustained uh, impact after the conversations. So what they did was uh, they followed up with surveys by email three days after the, after the uh, individuals had been canvassed about transgender rights, and again three weeks, and then six weeks, and then three months later. And what they found was the views of one in ten voters who were canvassed on transgender issues had, as the New York Times reports, shifted in favour of equal rights by an average of ten points on the measure they called the feelings thermometer. So 10 points on that scale is around about what the American public shifted views on gay rights between uh, 1998 and 2012. So this is um, larger than than it may sound, and it meant that... um Today we're going to meet Rosanna Diaz. Rosanna is a Bristol-based creative producer who's passionate about making the cultural sector more inclusive, in particular by supporting opportunities for minority ethnic artists, audiences and producers. She's worked with organisations like Watershed, Trinity and Rising Arts Agency, specialising in creative engagement projects which nurture new talent across film, theatre, dance and digital media. Her practice focuses on participation, inclusion and co-creation and Rosanna believes that bringing people together to share experiences, spark conversations and feel connected is incredibly powerful. I can only really speak from my perspective um, as like a a 31-year-old woman of colour, a creative producer someone who is mixed race and thinking about particularly how it impacts my work I guess um Mm -hmm. so yeah I was thinking when you asked this question I was thinking hmm well the fact of the matter is that the inequalities that play out in physical spaces often um, manifest in digital spaces and um you know immediately when you spoke of that I thought of a uh 
an incident that happened the other day when I was in a big meeting, lots of different people who I didn't really know. And it was myself and the only other woman of colour in that space that nearly got left out of saying anything in that space. So we went around and <laughs> everyone spoke and nominated. And again, at the end, as the meeting was running over late, our voices were, you know, were essentially silenced. But mm -hmm. the same time, the fact that actually I was able to have some distance from what was happening in the digital space, because I was in my own physical space that was, that was kind of distinctive, I actually felt more confident and have seen myself feeling more confident to shape my own inclusion in those digital spaces. So there's something interesting going on there. I don't know what it is, but it's quite fascinating. So being able to say, excuse me, you know, stop proceedings and, and step up into that space and hand over to the other, you know, woman who I knew um, to speak and then speak myself. So I think that's an interesting thing that's happening in the context of kind of COVID and this use of Zoom um, and, and how actually those inequalities are playing out. But of course, this is, you know, uh, a much bigger uh, question as well around particularly how kind of race is figured in virtual spaces um, and I mean there's a lot to say, a lot to say about no, that no absolutely and you know and I know we're only just touching on but you know as exactly as you say I think that it's there is something there about you know how the space that you occupy and what you carry with you versus occupying a space that was framed um and and set up by uh people from a from dominant culture background a great deal of privilege that you know was not configured to, to fit you and then you know they managed within it to silence and to mm. inverted commas miss you and in many ways you know women of color and people of color have been missing as in excluded from those spaces mm. from their inception um That's so when it. we're looking so when we're looking at this, we're looking at, you know, what is sustainable and, you know, what can inclusion in digital spaces and digital placemaking look like, but also how can it look sustainably? Because so often my sense is that we get um, ideas coming in, but they very much are coming off the idea that um, basically marginalised peoples need to do huge amounts of labour to reconfigure or to almost set up a temporary autonomous inclusion zone within a wider um, uh, non-inclusive space that exists for the length that we have energy to sustain it and then collapses when we collapse because such labour isn't sustainable or resourced. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I fully hear actually everything um that you're saying there I guess in terms so thinking about um how inclusion could be made sustainable or move towards sustainability in digital placemaking it made me think a lot about um how digital placemaking is kind of used in this way of mm -hmm. mostly around kind of commerce and cultural regeneration and kind of who uh, who gets uh, left out of that um, process um, and I think that speaks to what you're talking about in terms of how do we intervene within that system um, sustainably um, when there's such huge mechanics at play behind behind it all um, 
And I guess when I thought about sustainability, I felt like it was very much about the onus I would put onto uh, companies and creatives and policies, uh, policymakers to actually change their approach um, to to find ways that are engaging and involving um, of communities and building partnerships from that that are actually equitable and processes which are not extractive. And I know that that is a long-term change, but I think that it's something that is not spoken about. Um, and I think uh, the ideas around decolonizing our, our practice um, have not yet reached into those kind of commercial and creative companies and tech companies that are at the, the kind of face of innovation, let's say, in this area. Um, and that is part of the work I think to making this sustainable because when we create when we create systems when we create create places um, when we create these processes around making places and making digital layers and connecting places and people in communities um, you know often those processes are extractive and yeah continue to to um uphold inequalities so i do think there's a there's a there's a fundamental overhaul that needs to happen but i think it's going to be slow because change is slow but i think it needs to happen from within those companies and um there being some form of accountability held at policy level um yeah and and thank um, you for, for naming that here. Sorry, do, do go on. I, I just wanted to speak um, to the community aspect as well, because I think, um, I, I, don't, I, I think sometimes um, it's actually misleading to talk in such binaries of like kind of commerce and communities, power and community, because there's a lot of power within communities. Um, but how that is... Um, brought into conversations about digital placemaking and uh, essentially digital digital knowledge and sense of place is um, brought into those conversations. I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done around that equitable processes for, for doing that. 100%. And, and thank you for your part in that and for sharing here today and being part of this conversation. I thank you. I'm so speaking with Joanne Boyce. Joanne uses data to create inclusive marketing campaigns and marketing strategies. Joanne's interested in the relationship between data and bias, asking if you train a machine with intentionally biased data in favour of those from marginalised backgrounds, what happens? She writes that there is a trend of outrage and then a review which is also very common in artificial intelligence tools that are built with biased data sets, which, on one hand, uh, do not allow a black person to use a hand dryer, and then, on the other end of the spectrum, make black people crossing the street invisible to a driverless moving car. She's exploring the problem of how, of how others were trying to fix 
biased AI, it became clear to Joanne that the people who were involved from start to finish are the ones who benefit, and no matter what, they will always input their own biases. So instead of trying to fix a broken process, she's asking what it would look like to create her own biased AI. Joanne is currently a fellow in the Southwest Creative Technology Network in data, and she's exploring how data can be positively biased towards marginalised groups. Do you have any thoughts of how lack of inclusion has shaped digital spaces to date? I think it shapes it in the form of creation, because Mm. with creation of ideas, you need to have lived experience, you need to have perspectives and understanding. And the lack of inclusion within the room of people of many backgrounds means that creativity gets limited. If everyone in the room has lived stereotypically the perfect life, as they say, um, what you're going to imagine is going to be limited. So I think that affects the digital world a lot. Mm, Absolutely. So even what we're envisaging as digital options are actually limited by the imagination of people that are being gathered. So if digital transformation and digital placemaking, um, what could it look like if it were inclusive? That's the, the world's endless in that sense, because if you look at like simple documentaries of where we're still finding the depths of the ocean, we're still trying to understand what's on planet Earth. Because we haven't even gotten to a point of everyone's included in a conversation, of all forms of diversity, that wonder of what that would look like is deeper than the ocean. The possibilities are endless. Mm -hmm. I love it. And so um, what are the obstacles to inclusive digital placemaking and transformation in your area of work? In my area of work, it's an interesting one. Within the marketing sector, there's awareness but not a lot of action so there's a lot of marketers who are aware of lgbt um campaigns and black history month and um disabled rights and all these things they're very aware of these issues and the lack of people but they only seem to act when they think it's vilely beneficial or it's beneficial in the fact that everyone else is going to be doing it so they can hide behind Pride Month, you know? Whereas action outside of that will, until it becomes the norm, make them stand out. They're scared to take that action. So I think that's the limitation. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, no, absolutely. And my last question, can you tell me about a time where you feel discrimination has shaped or impacted your work or your industry, especially in terms of data or digital work? Ah, that's an interesting one because it's impacted in so many ways. But Mm -hmm. in terms of digital work, I think it's the importance of what I'm doing that tends to be a barrier to some people where they're kind of like, oh, that's a niche subject area or that's a niche thing to look at. And when we're talking about digital and we're talking about internet, nothing's niche on the internet because everyone has access. So you're saying that every disabled person on the earth is niche or every black person on earth is niche. That doesn't make sense. 
Um, but that comment of, oh, what you're doing is so niche is very, it's a very PG comment for people to say without awareness. And that's something that I feel like I face quite often in, in casual conversations. Mm, absolutely. And, you know, I'm hearing in it, it's really minimising. It's really dismissive. Um, mm. And, yeah, it's, 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 it's a horrendous thing to hear. I mean, and it reminds me of um, a, a teacher of mine, Chris Carr, who um, teaches around, now around wellness, but at beginning taught around cancer. And she was doing her film, Crazy Sexy Cancer, and she tried to sell it to, you know, mainstream networks. And they said, oh, no, cancer's too niche. Mm. And she said, right, so, you know, we have, um, like, uh, you know, 180-6590 uh, new cases of cancer in the US this year. But sure, cancer's niche. Mm-hmm. I just think it, the, the, the data doesn't back it up, but that idea of it being a special interest subject really persists. Mm-hmm. And that data and- cycle is super interesting because, in a lot of these cases, it's not that the data doesn't back it up, it's that no one bothered to research to find out. So there's no numbers. And no numbers doesn't mean that something's not valid, it just means there are no numbers. Mm, exactly, it just means they haven't looked yet. Mm-hmm. Mm. So thank you very much, Joanne, for joining us. And thank you. Thank you. been listening to electric inclusivity a special podcast series holding conversations with change makers to develop digital place making inclusively tune in to our next episode to hear more fascinating conversations on how we build digital futures that we can all be part of